Hello and welcome to our third edition of the podcast Interfacing Language. My name is Frederik, with me are Ivona and Ono, and our today's guest is Dr. Berit Gerke. Berit Gerke finished her habilitation thesis 2017 on event kinds and other related issues and works primarily in the syntax semantics interface, both in the nominal and the verbal domain. Dear Berit Gerke, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. We will have two topics we will talk about today, the first of which are event kinds, and the second topic will be about occasional type adjectives and event readings. And yeah, let's, let's just start and dive right ahead. So my, my first question would be, what are kinds exactly, and what are events, event kinds? So we, we did hear, maybe some did hear about kinds in their introduction to semantics when it comes to nominals, but what do kinds have to do with event semantics? Um, kinds, more general, um, have been introduced in the nominal domain. So there is an idea that uh, you can distinguish between kinds, and sometimes people also use the notion of types, and realizations or instantiations of these kinds in the actual world or in some possible world. And there are two different ways to view kinds or types. Well, sometimes people also make a distinction between kinds and types. I now just use them interchangeably, and I will just call them kinds. So. Either you say that you have first some kind of a concept of, for example, what a dog is or whatnot, and that's a kind of a concept you associate with, say, the kind dog. And then you can put these concepts into, the, into your structure and build your syntax and semantics based on these kinds, and then possibly talk about instantiations or realizations of these kinds in a world, right? Um, the other way to view kinds could be to say kinds are um, like all possible dogs that are in the world and you summarize over them and talk about this as being a kind. Yeah, so there, like you can go at a notion of kind from two different directions. Um, and there has been a lot of work on it by Carlson in the 70s, so his seminal um, PhD thesis that everyone is citing. And then um, the, the other one is everyone is citing is a, a longer paper by Kierkia from 98, where they talk about nominal kinds. Um, so what are event kinds then? So if we, in event semantics, we assume that events are like objects out there in the world. They are things you can refer to, um, you can modify with further, say, mana modifiers and other locative temporal modifiers. You can also refer back to them with anaphora, for example, the famous Davidson's famous example, Jones buttered the toast at midnight, it, it happened slowly or whatever these examples, where the it refers back to an event. So we assume that events are just like objects out there in the real world. If that's what we assume, and we have the distinction between kinds and tokens or realizations or instantiations of a kind in the nominal domain, 
we can also transfer this to the verbal domain and say we have event tokens, instantiations or realizations of event kinds. And this is the idea we have here. This kind of line of research is much younger. Um, I don't know why, it's just uh, there's much less work that has been done on this kind of research. And you, also, you already mentioned two of the central papers um, which analyze kinds with Carlson and Kierke. In your handbook article on event kinds, you also mentioned that they differ in quite some aspects. Could you explain some of the well, more general proposals and the differences of both approaches and how they matter to the study of event kinds? Um, it's the same. So what I said before, the, the, the idea that maybe um, you can think about kinds in terms of being the primitive, like the thing you start off with, and then you instantiate or realize the kind, and you can do a lot of other things with it. Or you can think about kinds in terms of generalizations over tokens, so they are derived. So there are two directions you can go. You go either from the kind to the tokens, or you go from a, a number of tokens to the kind. And in Kierkegaard's paper, both options are possible, but I do think that he would never say that kinds are really the basic notion you have. The basic notion is are really the entities in, in the world, and then you generalize over them, and from this you get the kind reading. Whereas for Carlson, it seems he goes the other way. So he says kinds, or he might not be so explicit about it, but it really looks like kinds in his system are the basic type and then you instantiate them or realize them in a world. And the same would then hold for events. You can view them either way. You can say there are generalizations over events out there in the world, and that's how you arrive at some kind of a kind. Or you can say, no, we have these kinds as the basic, type, so to say, and then we um, can realize or instantiate it in the world. You already introduced the term of uh, realization, and in a more formal part of the, the handbook chapter, you talk about the realization relation and the modification of kinds. Could you elaborate a little bit on that and on the process of kind modification and the derivation of subkinds? Oh, these are many questions in one. Um, let me think. Okay, so in Carlson's system, let's let's talk about that system now because that's the one I I intuitively find more appealing. Uh, I, but I don't think there are any empirical reasons to choose one or the other. Um, so you start out with this kind of concept you have, and what it make makes to say be the kind of eating hamburgers or whatever could be the kind, yeah. So um, you, you have some kind of concepts associated with it, but these are concepts that are outside of space and time. So these are just the, yeah, I use kinds again, but these are the kinds of events you associate with these types of events, yeah. Um, and then if you really wanna talk about these in particular, event of this kind, 
in a certain situation, say at a certain time in a certain space, then you instantiate or realize the kind by talking about it. And the idea um, that if you want to have a syntactic counterpart of it is that possibly whatever you have at the VP domain would be what gives you the, the information about the event kind. And then if you add aspect and tense on top of it, you actually instantiate this kind and locate it on the temporal axis and also in space and so forth. Which means if you do have these two different levels, so to say, um, you should also be able to detect this with particular modifiers. So modifiers that just, that also really need a space and time of the event to work as modifiers, which are temporal and spatial modifiers, should not really be good with things that are not, uh, with events that haven't been instantiated with events that somehow remained in the kind domain. Whereas if the event has been instantiated, you should also be able to um, combine it with temporal and spatial modifiers. Um, but then there are also other modifiers that might just um, derive a subkind of a particular event kind. So this is also something that goes back to Carlson in his dissertation that he said um, kinds in general, uh, have a hierarchical structure. So you can have, um, say, the kind animal. And then obviously there are subkinds, which could be dogs and cats and whatnot. But also modifiers can create subkinds. So you can have elephants and then Indian elephants and African elephants. Um, and there are certain kinds of modifiers in the nominal domain that are really prone to derive subkinds rather than giving you modification of an actual token in the world. And then there are others that are not like this. And so if you think that this idea is something that works in a nominal domain, you can also go to the event domain and see if you have some kind of a distinction between two types of modifiers uh, where one really needs a token and the other is fine with a kind. Um, so the example he had for the nominal kinds that are where it's really not good to modify them, the kind itself was um, things like alligators uh, in, in the New York sewer system, that's somewhat fine because somehow you create a subkind of alligators, those that live in the New York sewer system, sewer, or sewer system, I think was the word. But then the others were alligators in this pond next to my house. I don't know. I mean, things like this, where the, the um, kind of modifier really wanted or needed some kind of token to modify, and then um, the particular kind of um, yeah, the kind description he was after wasn't working anymore. So two of the characteristics of the, so to say, the subkinds or subkind taking structures uh, you talked about in, in the paper are pseudo incorporation and weak definites. What do they have in common structurally and how do you how are they related to event kinds? What is their analytical contribution to the study? 
Um, so you mean the event kinds paper or the adjectival passive paper? The event kinds paper. Okay. So in the event kinds paper, I just um, basically enumerate different proposals that use the notion of event kinds and then different empirical domains where people thought it might be useful to think about this kind token distinction also in the verbal domain. And um, so in the area of pseudo-incorporation or the semantic incorporation, um, it has been noted that the nominals that you get in these constructions, so these are constructions which English doesn't have, so it's a bit difficult. So um, for example, in Spanish, you can say things like, I am looking, I'm, I'm searching, or I search apartment instead of, well, there it's really a direct object, so I'm doing literal translation. I search apartment instead of I search an apartment or the apartment or something to mean that you, you're apartment hunting. So you, of course you can also say I'm apartment hunting in English, but this is proper incorporation. It's not pseudo incorporation because the nominal you have here uh, is also morphosyntactically incorporated into uh, the verb. And we know from these kinds of structures that the nominal inside such incorporations is non-referential, um, you cannot anaphorically refer back to it and so forth. And nobody from a semantic point of view says much more about it, right? Um, but then with these pseudo incorporation cases, the nominal is a much freer. You still really have search department. They don't form a morphosyntactic complex, at least not at first sight, but um, there's still something that is similar to going apartment hunting in this case. Um, and so the, and lots of observations have been made about these nominals uh, that they have um, certain properties or they have restricted, um, for example, restricted availability of modifiers. Uh, also, you cannot usually anaphorically relate back to them. Maybe they're even number neutral, even though the form might be singular. It just means you can also search for several apartments when you use this, even though you say I search apartment. Um, and so some people then have thought what happens here is that the, uh, like uh, some people, like uh, Chang and Ladoso and uh, Farkas and Deswart have suggested, and also already before them, Venita Dayal suggested that what happens with this nominal is that it's not a proper argument of the verb, but that you do something else. This nominal is more like a modifier of the verb and you create a complex kind of event description like this. Um, and then Carlson, so now in other papers, not in the 77 work, but much later together with some colleagues suggested that maybe for this, we could also use the notion of event kinds, that what you do is you have an event kind of apartment hunting. Um, and so obviously if you have an event kind, you cannot really fully specify an event participant in an event token with the apartment or the apartment that blah, blah, blah. You, you have, it's much more limited what kind of nominals you can have here. Um, 
and um, so this is one one idea. So the nominals you can get are usually bare nominals. They don't have articles, and they are, they have. If you really want to transfer that to some kind of syntactic structure, they have a lot of less articulate nominal structure. If you have an extended nominal structure in mind, um, and weak definites. Another case where now we do have a definite determiner. These are things like I, um, he went to the store. The store is here weak, can be a weak definite at least. Um, and normally we know about definite descriptions that you need a unique entity uh, and it has to exist in the world. Unique meaning there can only be one in the given context. But if we use a sentence like, he went to the store and you say, for example, and Peter also, also, uh, or Peter too, it doesn't mean they have to have gone to the same store. They could have gone to two different stores because again, it's just the same as going shopping. He went shopping. So again, it's a kind of, um, the effect is very similar to pseudo incorporation. The only difference is that we now have this definite determiner. But the definite determiner doesn't seem to do the same thing with weak definites as it does with, say, regular definites. So there also people have suggested what happens here is that, um, so there are different suggestions out there. Like Carlson and colleagues quite informally suggested the definite determiner doesn't have its effect on the nominal, but on the whole VP that you do create something like an event kind and the definiteness on it just says it's the unique event kind of going shopping, which can then of course be instantiated in various ways. Uh, and um, also Schwartz had a um, suggestion that also here, even though you have this definite marker, you also create something like an event kind. So this is how maybe event kinds can also be used in any kind of structure that has the semantics of incorporation, but not necessarily the morphosyntax of incorporation. Um, yeah, and then obviously in the adjectival participles um, work that I did, where I also looked at modification of adjectival participles I also have to, so I saw that they are limited to bare nominals, like if you have by phrases, for example, or with phrases, if you have things like um, the painting was painted by a child, or things like this. These uh, nominals inside those by or with phrases also show similar restrictions as those in pseudo incorporation, and also sometimes you get definites, but then also probably only weak definites. And so the idea was that something similar happens with those modifiers. They also somehow have a closer tie with a participle. You create, a, you have some kind of an event kind description here together with those modifiers. Now you're not only occupied with the formal semantics themselves, but also with the syntax semantics interface. And you already talked about the realization of kinds at the VP level or above the VP level. 
What does this proposal of event kinds have to say about the derivation of subkinds of the relation of event kinds and lexical semantics and the syntactic configuration? Or from another perspective, does the semantic analysis of kinds have something to say about whether the derivation of subkinds is a lexical or a syntactic process? No, because I do think that this um, whole debate about what happens in the lexicon and what happens in the lower part of the syntactic structure is, as far as I can see, a theory internal debate. I don't really see any strong empirical evidence for one or the other. So I'm very much, I stay away from that debate. I do a lot in the syntax because I've, that's, I followed more classes like this that did it in the syntax. And I also read more papers at the time where I formed my ideas, where people were doing it in a syntax. Um, but I don't think there's a very strong empirical argument for that. It's just, it's for me, it's a good way to think about things. And also, to think maybe, yeah, why not? Why not have a whole lot happening inside the VP and maybe even with little VP? I'm, I'm still not sure what, what little VP, what the role of little VP is, but at least the VP domain, all that for me is definitely the event kind domain. And if you have modifiers anywhere there, they can easily give you um, event subkinds. Um, and then, I'm very certain that when you have aspect and tense on top of it, you have to have an event token. I'm still undecided whether an agent can actually be responsible for initiating, or sorry, for instantiating an event, which, or whether we also there maybe have those that just are parts of the event kind description, like an initiator, whatnot, and those that are true agents and instantiate it. So that's why I'm I'm so I'm not very clear about what to do with the little VP or voice P or whatever. Um, and the other thing is also that in another paper uh, that you I don't think read haven't read the one on idioms together with um, Louise McNally, we actually have a a much more radical idea how this semantic syntax interface works here, although people say the syntax semantics interface, um, namely that maybe also all the referential, uh, everything that has to do with referential, referentiality is not part of the event kind. So it's also, even though you, you might combine the verb with its internal argument quite low, the reference you associate with the internal argument in the end happens later. So, so the idea is at that level, maybe everything is just modification. It's like pseudo incorporation at some point, and then at some point later, you add the referential aspects. Although this is a lot harder to swallow with, uh, with traditional ideas about semantics and syntax. So took some time to actually work that out. And whenever we tried to present this, it was impossible to present this paper because it would probably take three or four hours to present it. 
And I think it's a very refreshing perspective on these debates between lexicalism and non-lexicalism and all the others. It, um, okay, I can say one more thing about this, because when I was a PhD student, I closely worked with Tanja Reinhardt, like she was uh, one of my supervisors, who was in the lexicalist camp, I mean, strong lexicalist camp. She even thought that Rappaport and Levine are non-lexicalist. Um, and I spent a research stay in Tromsø with Julian Ramshon and um, Peter Svinonius, who are strong syntacticians, anti-lexicalists. And I kept asking both camps constantly, give me empirical arguments. I, I don't get it. Nobody could give me these empirical arguments. It was always like the syntactic camp told me, um, yeah, you know, if you can do it in one component, why double it in both components? Which for me is, is, is an, yeah. I mean, if you do computation, why do you have computation in both components? Let's just have it in one component. But that's a theory internal argument. It's not, I mean, there's no empirical evidence for it. Fine. Then the other camp, well, that was also funny because I was, I had a, um, office hour with Tanya and uh, in the last five minutes someone else who was after me already came in who was a strong defender of lexicalism um, and I asked Tanya but not this other person to give me good empirical arguments for the lexicalist camp and then this person with a strong opinion started bashing me and saying yeah you have to do it lexicalist blah, blah, blah. and she went on and on to the point that Tanya decided to take the other role and argue against lexicalism just to educate her student properly, to not be brainwashed in one direction or the other. So I think in the end, you really have to make up your own mind. And I personally don't see any empirical arguments for one or the other. Now that you already mentioned her, we will interview Rappaport Horvath next week. So we have a similar question prepared for her also. Good. And if you find solutions or good answers, please pass them on. If we get some empirical evidence, we will tell you. <laughs> so before we delve into your paper, multiple event readings and occasional type adjectives, could you please elaborate on the difference between cases where frequent adjectives uh, combines with a sort of noun and that gets coerced into an event noun in cases where frequency adjective combines with a sort of noun that does not get coerced into an event noun but retains its sort of interpretation. The latter case received a lot of attention in the previous literature, so could you explain to us why? Yeah, so frequency adjectives are adjectives like daily, weekly, occasionally, but maybe also rare and other things like this. And they um, somehow intuitively tell us something about the frequency of something. But also since it's usually a kind of temporal notion, we assume it must be a frequency of a kind of event maybe. So you have things like weekly meetings or um, daily thunderstorms right? So in meeting, of course, there's a verbal element in it. In thunderstorm, there isn't, but at least we can still think about thunderstorms as, as kinds of events, right? And this is a, so the thunderstorm is a subtle noun, but you can still have a kind of eventive interpretation of it. 
Uh, whereas meeting is not a subtle noun, but it's a noun derived from a verb. So obviously people think there is some kind of event associated with it, right? Um, we also can have, so, and you can have different readings that these adjectives um, generate, at least that's how the literature treats them. You can have the so-called internal, generic, and adverbial reading. So under the internal reading, which is, uh, for example, the occasion, an occasional sailor is someone who sails occasionally, where the occasional obviously modifies the sail inside of the sailor. However, that works from a syntactic or semantic point of view is, is a different matter. But um, the effect of the adjective is clearly within the nominal. Um, and this one you can have in all kinds of sentences, the occasionals, John is an occasional sailor, or um, all the occasional sailors I met. No, 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 no. I mean, you can have, have it wherever you want to have it. Um, then there's the generic reading of frequency adjectives, which are things like, um, yeah, the typical example is with a sort of noun, but these also work with um, eventive nouns. So things like um, a daily, I don't know, a daily beer is refreshing. Yeah. So here you somehow don't have a sort of noun, the beer, and you somehow attribute daily to it. And what you then actually interpret is more like something like drinking a daily. Drinking a beer on a daily basis is good for you. So where even though you don't have an event now, you still recreate some kind of event, whatever you do with a beer. And the daily, you can paraphrase as on a daily basis. And the whole sentence is generic. So it makes a general statement, a generic statement about beers on a daily basis. And you say they are good or they are refreshing. Um, and then there's a third type of reading, which is the most often discussed reading, because that's the really strange one, and it also doesn't happen in all kinds of languages, um, is where you have things like the occasional sailor strolled by, that's the typical example, where you can paraphrase the adjective as a sentential adverb. So occasionally a sailor strolled by. Um, and here, you really don't need an event noun. You can also have this with event nouns, of course, um, and you can have it also then with daily, weekly, and so forth. But if you do not have an event noun, if you have a subtle noun, and you want to have the adverbial reading, this will not work with daily, weekly, and some other frequency adjectives. So you cannot say a daily sailor strolled by, meaning on a daily basis, or like every day a sailor strolled by. This just doesn't work. So all you get will be the internal reading, someone who sails daily strolled by. Um, so here you, you really see that a distinction has to be made between frequency adjectives that really require you to have events they can quantify over, namely daily, weekly, and so forth, and those frequency adjectives that seem to not require this. They can obviously also maybe 
have it. I mean, we can also have occasional meetings and occasional thunderstorms, but especially with these adverbial reading, um, they really don't need it. And um, so this is an empirical puzzle uh, that people have tried to solve differently. I don't know how far you want me to go into that, but I think first for now, you just wanted the empirical picture, I think. Yes, uh, I'll just take over here. Um, and yeah, we have some more questions about this. Uh, something that I want to pick up is because you've mentioned it before, the uh, empirical evidence. Now you brought some empirical evidence by the method that in the paper you call it diagnosed by paraphrase. Can you outline how, what, like what the empiric uh, validity of this is? Because it, you know, this kind of thing always raises for me the question, how many speakers need to confirm the paraphrase for it to be empirically valid or yeah, what, what makes it empirically valid? It doesn't because just paraphrasability with an adverb, I mean, you always have to be very careful what you do with these paraphrases, right? Um, just because you can have an adverbial paraphrase, for example, doesn't mean that the thing is an adverb or has exactly the same function as the adverb would have. It just approximates the readings you are after and the question, maybe there are different readings, maybe they are not even there. Maybe they just, you still have exactly the same kind of semantics and you somehow, by putting it together with different elements, get the effect of such readings, right? Um, so yeah, you always have to be very careful with paraphrases and they should really only be used as a first approximation about general intuitions about the data you, you want to look at. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, so now we're at the point that you mentioned before uh, to ask some more questions about uh, frequency adjectives and the different ways that people can analyze it. Um, something that you suggest is to focus more on temporal versus non-temporal readings. Can you outline uh, how this relates to the analysis of frequency adjectives, in particular um, the adverbial ones? Um, yeah, so um, this temporal non-temporal distinction with respect to frequency adjectives is just something that Louise McNally and I, um, yeah, what did I say? Discovered sounds a bit too much, but um, thought about, say. Because before people were only talking about these three different readings in isolation um, and usually didn't really have a, uni or like a uniform account for all three readings. There's only one paper before ours that also tried a uniform account, which in the end is also not fully uniform. But um, so what we then really wanted to look at is because also the other thing that all the, the previous li literature um, somehow described but didn't really fully capture was, oh yeah, there are these determinal restrictions here and these there and these other restrictions here and these there, but it was never put in a complete picture. And also there were like scattered observations about restrictions on the nouns that these adjectives could combine with under particular reading and we tried to make it more systematic. And at some point, it was really quite obvious that there 
one there's one type of frequency adjective that really requires um, distribute as they, they both require distribution right so daily requires a, a distribution over days weekly over weeks occasionally over occasions um, but it really depends on what you distribute Dis do you distribute real objects or do you distribute events um, so do you distribute in the temporal domain with events or can you also distribute in some other domain which doesn't have to be connected to time so if you have um, daily meeting or occasional meetings you really look at your time axis and every once in a while on the time axis there is a meeting um, similarly if you have the occasional sailor strolling by it seems there might be something temporal going on but you could also have a sentence like the occasional sailor is six feet tall there's no temporal distribution whatsoever you just have a like a group of sailors like all the sailors in the world maybe and then you find a few that are six feet tall and that's all you do and they can be exist at the same time no problem as long as they are distributed in some other domain so we then uh, realized that most frequency adjectives so so the literature only usually says but there's there's very early literature by stump that does look at all three readings in detail and then focuses on the adverbial reading and gives it a completely different analysis than the other two readings which is fair why not right um, and then there are, there's this other paper by Zimmermann that doesn't even talk about the other readings, but just says, oh, this adverbial reading, amazing. It's a complex qualifier or determiner. This is really interesting, which it is, of course. Um, but then that analysis definitely doesn't work for the other uses. And um, so we tried to really look at what all users might have in common and figured out that many or most of the frequency adjectives that we know really require temporal distribution. And this is what we get in all three readings. And in all three readings, we get a requirement that there has to be an event that is modified by this adjective. Whereas um, some, and there we had odd and rare in this case. So the odd sailor strolled by, meaning on odd occasions a sailor strolled by, or the rare sailor strolled by, on rare occasions a sailor strolled by. These only give, I mean, these are really the ones that are quite different from daily and weekly in the sense that they do um, give rise to this adverbial reading. And occasional seem to be able to do both. So it was able to do temporal, non-temporal distribution all over the place. Um, but following from this, that maybe everything else we talked about when we talked about these readings follows from other aspects. So the internal reading is clear. You have to have some kind of um, event inside of the nominal that is modified, that gets modified. Um, and this is not possible with the uh, non-temporal frequency adjective. So you cannot have someone, an odd sailor, being someone who sails on, on occasion or rarely or something. This is just not possible. Or a rare sailor is not someone who sails rarely. It's something completely different. So this you only get with daily, weekly and so forth. 
then we also realized, and that's also something that some others partially already realized, that the determiner restrictions of the generic and adverbial reading are quite similar. So, and then we, we saw, okay, that all the temporal ones actually need an indefinite determiner on both readings. This is the new observation because before everyone said, oh, definite, indefinite, and bleach possessive, but no other determiners. Now, if you really have this divide into temporal and non-temporal frequency adjectives, uh, you see that under the generic and the adverbial readings, the temporal ones require an indefinite article and the non-temporal ones require a definite article or a bleached possessive. And again, occasional can do both. So, so this kind of generalization is not captured by an analysis that gives one account of the adverbial reading and a completely different one for the generic reading. Um, so in the end, what we then said about the generic reading is that gener the generic reading comes from the predicate itself. So if you say uh, a daily beer is good for you or is refreshing, then this is refreshing itself already gives you the generalization meaning over whatever many events and everything else stays the same as it would with um, the adverbial or also the internal reading. And so then in the end, only the, really the adverbial reading is the one um, where we have to say a little bit more. Thank you. I have a set of questions, final set of questions. So you mentioned that the exclusive function of non-temporal frequency adjectives is to provide information about the distribution of the realizations of the kind they modify. Well, they are, first of all, they are modifiers of modifiers rather. So they are predicate modifiers rather than intersective kind of modifiers. That was our first idea. And also the second idea was that they really always modify a kind, an event kind or token kind because they are not restricted, uh, sorry, not event kind or nominal kind because they are not restricted sortily. So they can combine both with events and with regular objects. Um, so, but they always apply to a kind we decided or we proposed and that uh, they then somehow um, impose restrictions on the instantiations or realizations of that kind in some domain, which can be spatial, which can be temporal, which can be whatever. Um, and so the idea is if you then have an occasional sailor strolling by, so to say, you have the kind of sailor which is instantiated on occasion. So this is the technical, well, I, this is half technical, the uh, pros of the technicalities we have in this account. How uh, determiners combine in generic readings? Some readings allow them and some do not. Okay, so in the, yeah, I, th I thought I already said this. So in the generic reading, uh, the determiner restrictions with frequency adjectives are just the same as in the adverbial reading, right? So the um, uh, temporal ones require an indefinite article or a bare plural, which is also indefinite. 
Uh, and the non-temporal ones require a definite article or um, a bleached possessive like you or like things like this. Um, like your occasional beer is good for you or something, which sounds a bit weird, but some other examples are a bit better maybe. Um, and so the idea in both cases is the same, that you need the definite determiner when something is restricted to a kind, because all you're talking about is the unique kind of something, the unique nominal or verbal kind. And then the instantiations, of course, can be pluralities of this. This is fine, but if you really just want to talk about kinds of sailors, you only have one unique kind. There's no other thing you can talk about. Whereas uh, what the temporal ones do is they really talk about uh, instantiations of kinds. Uh, and then you can talk about it in the singular with an indefinite or in a plural with a bare plural. And this is the same for the generic as it is for the um, adverbial reading because the generic reading, you get the genericity really only from the, um, from the predicate that's involved, the verbal predicate usually, or adjectival predicate that's involved in the sentence. Yes, thank you. And one more question regarding the generic readings. In one of your previous papers written in collaboration with Louise McNally, you proposed the same semantics for both generically and adverbially used non-temporal frequency adjectives. Could you tell us what evidence supports your analysis? Um, for the uniform account of frequency adjectives in general. So in support of it is, I mean, it's not fully uniform, obviously, because we have two types. We have the temporal and the non-temporal ones. And also the real weak point is that occasional has to be ambiguous. That's quite ugly. Um, and also another empirical problem is, I will come up afterwards, after I say what the empirical support is for this. Um, the, the empirical support for this is, is exactly that the determiner restrictions are the same under both readings. And the internal reading is something which you also have in the beautiful dancer, the typical Larsen example, a beautiful dancer, someone either who dances beautifully or someone who is a beautiful person and also happens to be a dancer, which also, by the way, works really beautifully in English, but not necessarily in all other languages. Um, so the, the internal reading is, in a way, is tricky, but it's tricky for, for the same way as beautiful dancer is tricky because it's weird to have an adjective that accesses something inside the nominal, this event that you have in your sale or dance or whatnot. But once you took care of that, the whole thing is still the same. You have an event that's modified by the frequency adjective. And you don't have determiner restrictions because here the determiner is really on the object, the sailor and so forth, whereas the adjective is, is modifying the event inside the object. So the determiner doesn't say anything about whether we have an event kind or event token or whatever there is possibly inside. But under the generic and the adverbial reading, the determiner really has to say something about it. And then if you say, 
whatever these adjectives do, they, they want to distribute over something, over some domain. One kind wants to distribute over the temporal domain, so you really have to have instantiations of something. The other one wants to can instantiate over whatever, but it just gives you actually um, instantiation requirements on a kind. Then whatever the effect is with the generic reading and the adverbial reading is exactly the same. So you have exactly the same determiner restrictions, exactly the same role that each determiner plays for the nominal and that it's a generic or adverbial reading falls up from, from the, the rest of the sentence, not from the adjective plus noun plus determiner together. It really comes from somewhere else. And I think this is a strong argument for a uniform account because if you have one account for the adverbial reading and another one for the generic reading, you really miss this empirical connection that both have, namely the determiner restrictions are exactly the same. So that's, I guess, our main argument for the uniform account. Um, also, usually it's obviously a lot uh, more elegant if you don't have an occasional one and occasional two or occasional three, although we have now occasional one and two, unfortunately, but at least you don't have an odd one or a rare one and, and two and a daily one and two and three. You really have this kind of uniform account here. Um, now the problem is for our paper that we predict that occasional under the adverbial reading shouldn't be possible with the indefinite determiner if you have it with a sorter noun. Because what we say is that the temporal frequency adjectives require event nominals or coercion of some subtle noun into something eventive, and the non-temporal ones do not. So then whenever we see it, a frequency adjective with a, with a sorter noun and there's no event coercion, and we have the generic or the adverbial reading, we predict yet you always have to have the definite determiner. But if you have an occasional sailor stroll by, it can also get the adverbial reading. So this is a huge problem for our approach. And we don't know why this is the case. So this is one empirical flaw, but the others are all fine, so. Thank you very much for the elaboration. I have two final questions that are related to your work and your path to linguistics more generally. Uh, you devoted a lot of attention to the language phenomena in Slavic languages in your previous work. So can you tell us how you became interested in Slavic linguistics? Okay, so after high school, I decided to study something with languages. And in the last year of high school, we could all go to these orientation meetings at universities and look into different um, subjects. And I think I looked at Latin and French. And Latin was super dry, even though I love Latin, I thought, no, I can't study this. And French, I was surrounded by people I didn't really like <laughs> at this meeting. I didn't like any of these people. And I thought, okay, I'm not gonna study French. So I went through the list of languages 
and it's like, oh yeah, I had two years of Russian at school just for fun. Why not try to study Russian? And Russian was my minor at the time. So my major was even German literature because I thought maybe what is interesting about languages is the literature. Maybe that's why I like languages so much. I realized very soon that's not the case, but we also had to take these linguistics classes and they were really interesting. I had never heard about linguistics before. And then I had a wonderful professor in the Slavic department, Hans-Robert Melich, who really enthused all his students. I mean, everyone fell in love with linguistics because of this one professor. And uh, so I, in, in the end, somehow ended up with Slavic linguistics. And that's how I came to be interested in Slavic linguistics. Thank you. And in a video recorded by Humboldt University, you talk about the different opportunities you had after completing your studies. Can you tell us what motivated you most to pursue a PhD in linguistics? Yeah, this was also just by chance, basically. So after I finished my studies, I had different options. So I, or at least I pursued different options. So I thought, okay, I could continue working at this firm where I had a student job, which was a, um, like a speech application firm that did this speech recognition for things like barn and well, they didn't do it for the barn, otherwise it would have worked in the barn when you talk with them, but for other things where it actually works, where people invest money to get good speech recognition. And I was working in the linguistic um, department there and I had this eight hour job as a student and they offered me a full-time job to stay with them and be a team leader, so to say. And then I had another option to go to Shanghai and teach I don't know even know whether it was English or German, one of those two, for um, half a year or for a year, which I also thought was really nice. And then I also thought, oh, I also like studying, I like learning, so maybe I can apply to various linguistics programs, which I did, and then I actually got into the one in Utrecht and chose to do this. If I hadn't gotten into that one, I would have probably done one of the other two things and would not have continued with linguistics. Yeah, so I mean, I studied at a time when we could study as long as we wanted and we basically um, didn't really think so much about the future. Thank you so much for the whole interview. I okay, thank well. you. Thank you also for my side for being here with us. Yeah. Thanks. It's very inspirational also, the last part. Yeah, thank you for interviewing me and showing interest in my work. Uh -huh.